Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at the documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Christian Taylor, and a documentary filmmaker myself. I am usually joined by my co-host, Jason Rugg. However, today we have an exceptional cinematographer uh, sitting in our uh, guest chair. And so I asked uh, our own cinematographer, Chad Gilfrey, Gilchrist, who is our DP for Heroes of Carenton, to join us so he can ask the geeky cinematography and filmmaker questions. Welcome, Chad. I'm really glad to have you here. Thank you for making time last minute. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to dive in today. Yeah, it's going to be great. All right, just uh, I want to do a sidestep for a second. Uh, if you're a frequent listener to our podcast, you'll know we have a tremendous group of people that support us on Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, that is, I just want to tell you, it's an online platform created for creatives, just like me, where people who believe in the work that we're doing show their support by making a one-time or a monthly donation to the artist. This support is integral to helping each artist achieve their work, but it also creates a community for those who support the artist at the same time. We have an incredibly special group of people who banded together to support what we're doing here at Documentary First, and we're incredibly thankful. So thank you, guys. Uh, if you're interested in knowing what it's all about, go to patreon.com slash documentary first. We see our members as our creative collaborators, not just supporters. So we'd love to have you join the fun. Come, come join us. All right, now that that's behind us, let's get on with the show. Today, we are delighted to be joined by award-winning cinematographer, Layla Kilborn. Welcome, Layla. It's so nice to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you have such interesting stories. We're going to dive in, but I want to start off by reading your bio, if that's okay. All right, everybody, tie on your hats. This is going to be a great one, so it's pretty <laughs> impressive. Uh, director of photography, Layla Kilborn, has accumulated amazing feature credits, including Best Cinematography Award winner for Swim Team and eight Sundance documentary premieres, such as Girl State, which is premiering on April 5th on Apple TV, the DuPont Columbia Journalism Award winner, This is Home, a Refugee Story, Peabody Award winner, How to Dance in Ohio, and Emmy-nominated Word Wars. Her award-winning narrative work includes The Duke and Duchess of Queens, Death of a Fool, Crabs in a Barrel, Park Slope Moms, and June Weddings. She's a member of the International Cinematographers Guild, the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, New York Women in Film and Television, and the International Collective of Female Plus Cinematographers. She served for a jury for the Brooklyn International Film Festival as a panelist on, um, on cinematography at Canon Creative Studio and Doc NYC Pro, and as a guest speaker for the New School. And if all those stats aren't enough to impress you, she has a degree in social anthropology from Harvard University. Uh, it's just incredible. She's one of seven cinematographers on Girl State, the film that we're going to talk about today. She was tasked with following one girl throughout the entirety of the documentary. Using a handheld Verite camera work, Canon cameras, and prime lenses, she managed to capture intimate moments between Tochi, one of the characters, and the other girls, as well as Grand and moments like the everyday assemblies at Girl State. Uh, so that is just mind blowing. You have been a busy little beaver. So <laughs> I, I want to just dive in and talk about all of this. Uh, first of all, let's talk about uh, Girl State. I hear it debuted at Sundance. I mean, it may not be so exhilarating since you have eight debuts at Sundance, but tell us a little bit about what that was like. Well, it never gets old. Sundance is always exciting. Um, it was a thrill to be there. I was lucky enough to be able to go this time. I haven't always gone, um, but this time I got to be there. And all the girls from the film were there, and several of the crew members came. So it was a big reunion, and um, the premiere was wonderful. It was the first time I'd seen it on the big screen with an audience. Wow. And to see the audience response was, I mean, it's just wonderful. It, the, I would say Sundance audiences generally are very warm and receptive and, you know, are, are there because they want to support the filmmakers. So they tend to, they're very quick to give standing ovations and, but it's still, it's still great when you get one. Um, yes, for sure. And uh, so it was really fun. It was, and it was fun to see all the people that I'd worked with that came. Yeah, it's sort of like a big family reunion because a lot of people, if you're not in the filmmaking world, you don't understand that you make a film, you come together for this intense time, and then you kind of break up and go your separate ways. I told Chad after we did Heroes of Carenton, I think I'm super depressed. I feel 
very sad and lonely, right? And so coming yeah. together was probably very special for you. That, that's exactly the case. I mean, on Girl State, um, we were we were in these small groups, each each of the seven cinematographers with one sound person and our girl. So the sound person I work with, who was from Missouri, I hadn't worked with before, and we bonded right away and became you know a little unit that just moved through the film. And then I then I went back to New York, and he went back home in Missouri, and I didn't see him until Sundance. And and he actually wrote me before Sundance. He sent me a postcard at Christmas saying, "So Sundance, are you going?" And I emailed him immediately and said, "Yes, you have to come." And so he came. And so then and then we reunited with Tochi, the girl we followed, and it was great. It was like our tiny little family came back together. And and you don't always get that. Sometimes you don't get to see people for years and years. Um, so yeah. it was it was really nice. That's beautiful. So you think that uh, it did well at Sundance Girl State? Yeah. Well, the response that I saw, I mean, it, I think um, most films have five or six screenings over the course of the 10 days of the festival. And I was there for the first two of those. I think they had five screenings. Um, and both of them, a huge response from the audience. Um, people stood, you know, stood in their seats, uh, clapping, laughing during the film. Lots of questions for the girls. Um, it, yeah, it was great. It was really great. And, you know, it debuts on April 5th. So what that means is I think it is an, uh, an Apple TV original, correct? Yes. So it was their idea. They paid for the money uh, and they're going to, well, you know. Well, so the, what happened was the directors, Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss, had done Voice Date before. Right. In 2020. And Apple bought that. after They had made it and I they sold see. it to Apple. So then Apple got on board when they said they wanted to make the girls version and said, yes, we'll fund that. So, so they were uh, on board beautiful. from the beginning. Yeah, it was so great. Chad, would that be this the way it is for all of us? <laughs> yeah, for real. I wish. <laughs> yeah, that's an open check. Yeah. yeah. What What is yeah. that like to kind of work in a? Because you've done a lot of uh, films that have a lower budget, um, and not to say that out the gate that it was a blank check from Apple necessarily, but I imagine that the level of access you have there, maybe more prep days, longer shoot days, or more. Uh, more days of principal production, et cetera. You know, what was it like to kind of have uh, a, maybe more of a budget this time? Yeah, it was, it was actually um, kind of exhilarating <laughs> uh, because so we had these seven DPs and sound people, and then we actually had a team of people supporting them, which I often do wow. not have on a, a documentary. We had two ACs, we had two DITs, we had a number of PAs, um, we had this like central equipment base camp room that we were, everything was in. It sounds like a narrative. Are you kidding me? How is this I, I know, I know. Exactly. I walked in the first day and I, and I thought, you know, did I step on some other film set? Because this is unreal. Um, it was, it was fantastic. So, you, you know, we, we'd go out. My sound man's name was Kevin McKinney and Kevin and I would go out and shoot, 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 come back, hand off, hand over the cards tell the AC if we needed batteries or the batter, the batteries would be run to us where we were on location. Everyone could text to each other and they bring stuff out on golf carts. Um, Cause we were on this big campus. So we were all spread sure. over the place. So uh, having, having that support team was unbelievable. And, and Amanda and Jesse would be there in that central place and we'd report back to them, you know, what we'd shot, what had happened what was up with the girl that we were following so that they had an idea of the overall picture of the film. And, um, and Amanda would write it all up on this big whiteboard, you know, all the events and what was coming up and who was covering what. And it was, it was quite an organization and it, it took that wow. many people to, to do it because these girls were nonstop for, I think it was seven or eight days all day and all night. And there was a lot to cover and, and we're only human. So, so it takes, it takes a team. <laughs> Yeah. So if you don't mind, just another follow up to that. Um, as you're shooting, you're reporting the events. You're kind of almost like a scripty, um, mm -hmm. where I've, I've done a little bit of reality when I was starting and they were kind of, you know, taking notes of the narrative and to get a sense of the edit. Did, did you guys have a sense of what the narrative would shape up to be, um, pretty quickly? Was it not until the edit room or? Yeah, no, I had no idea what the story was going to end up being because each of the girls, I mean, I only, partly because I only saw my girl's story. So, you know, there's all these other girls that are having their experiences and I don't really know what's going on with them because I never see them. And the DPs, we would talk to each other about, but mostly about maybe if a big event happened, 
but mostly about the equipment, what was working, what wasn't, what lenses we liked, what techniques we liked, or, you know, sharing sharing techniques that we had or, or specialized pieces of equipment that we had. So at the end of the day, I would the story I would know was the one I'd been filming. So I knew what I was giving to the directors to work with, but I didn't know what the other 60 P's were giving them. And I didn't know of all that footage, what they were going to end up choosing. There were some things that I thought, I thought were clear would be in there. Um, the, which, which did end up being in it. And one of them was the dichotomies and inequalities between girl state and boy state, because when we filmed girl state for the first time, both of those camps were happening on the same campus at the same time, which is one of the reasons that the directors picked that particular edition of girl state in Missouri to do because there was boy state right next door. So that meant the girls and the boys were aware of each other and their experiences and what was different about it. And we, we were capturing that as it was happening, them discussing that, pointing it out, having issues with it, all that. So it seemed like that was likely, but I didn't really know because it's a lot of footage and a lot of stories and you don't ever know what directors end up thinking is important ultimately and what kind of film, because you could make multiple films out of any documentary set of footage. I mean, you, know, you could make docu-series, you could make a couple of, you know, se sure. sequential films if you wanted to. There's just so many ways to cut a film. So um, I was I was thrilled to see what they did do because I thought they got a lot of important stuff in. And, and it's hard to do with that many girls too, that many characters. You know, you, you talked about working with directors and I am a director, so I'm kind of coming at this from the director point of view. And I would love to know uh, from a cinematographer's point of view, and Chad, you can weigh in as well, uh, what it is like to work with directors and what makes a good, you know, you know, DP director relationship and what makes a challenging DP director relationship? Well, for me, um, my favorite directors are the ones who know what they want. Um, they have an idea, they have a vision, they have a goal. And in documentary, obviously, things happen that you don't expect. Things go in directions you didn't anticipate, and you, you pivot with that and then change your plan. But uh, in my experience, the best directors to collaborate with go into it with some kind of overall vision of what kind of film they want to make. Um, and then if they have to pivot, they explain that to you where how they're pivoting. Uh, and the same in narrative films. When I work on narrative films, it's the same thing. A director, they may not know every shot they want. Sometimes they do, but they know basically what they do want. So if you present them with options, they're able to say, I like this one. This is the option I want. It, the ones that I have the hardest time with are the ones you present options and they can't, they, they can't narrow it down for you. And they're like, well, can we shoot everything? Not really, no. <laughs> you know, there's only so much time in the day and so much money in the budget. So you do have to make choices. And that's where that's where it gets difficult when when the person who's leading the charge isn't making that decision. So that's mm. what I love. And the second thing I'll say, and then Chad, see if you agree with me, is the ones who trust me to get it. Um, mm. The ones who say, this is what I want. And articulate it to the best they can what's in their head that I have to then understand and interpret through the lens and then trust me to get it and then give me feedback if I don't get it, of course. But um, trust that they have in, in me have someone who can manifest what they're talking about until I until I show that I can't. And then obviously we have to figure that out or I'm the wrong person for the job. But um it's a management position and micromanaging generally doesn't get great results. And I find that because a DP is also a management position. You're managing your crew and I have to trust my crew to do their best work. And when I say I want this light to do that, you know, to create this particular look, trust that my gaffer understands that and will do it and not tell him exactly how to open the barn doors, how to tilt. Like That's his job. He knows how to do it let them do it and then evaluate the results. So it's, it's uh, knowing what you want and managing with trust, I guess would be the easiest way to say that. Mm, I like that. What do you think, Chad? Do you have anything to add? To yeah, that? I, I really couldn't agree more. I, I think it's, it's really difficult to um, kind of work blindly and, and feel where the walls are, you know, at, versus having boundaries set. And um, I think the, the best times are, 
honestly, the, the tighter the boundaries, because it's like, hey, we're, we're going to present this story from this person's perspective. Um, I'm looking for images that, that evoke these senses. These are the things that I'm trying to communicate. Um, this is where we are. This is what our budget is. This is the days we have. Um, and the more rigid you are on, on these things, the more that, um, I feel like you have options for creativity and, and within those boundaries, you can really start to find like, okay, this is our story. Um, and with that, I'm curious working with, you know, a, a handful of different cinematographers on the same project. And obviously Boy State had a very clear, um, yeah, presentation. The imagery is very bold. There's a lot of, you know, movie kind of, you know, steady work, um, wide lenses, very intimately close with, with people. Um, I'm curious what it's like kind of coming back to a project that's already been presented and then looking at it and saying, Hey, do we, do we follow the rules that we had last time? Are we open to something new? Um, and developing the intimacy with, with, with your characters and what that looks like. And all of those things kind of present, um, they add up to a different way that you might shoot something. You know, uh, if I have X amount of time with someone, I might be able to have a bigger rig because they, they can get more comfortable with it over time. If it's someone that's been around the camera, if they haven't, I might be smaller rig or whatever. Um, so I'm, if you want to speak to that, I'm kind of curious what it was like, um, going into, to girl state with that in mind. Yeah, no, we talked about all those things. Those are all really good points. Um, so I guess the first thing I would say was I, I actually loved working with six other DPs at once because usually being the DP is kind of a lonely job. There's only one of you on a, on a job and you've no one else to bounce ideas off of that is in exactly your position and knows exactly what you're talking about. So having six other people in the room who were doing exactly what I was doing, more or less, was great. And just to come back together and feel that support and that camaraderie and unity of purpose is really fun. It's just, it's just fun. <laughs> so that was great. And I didn't know going into it, it would be like that. Um, because often you could have multiple cinematographers, but somebody's on top and everybody else is, you know, operating for them. But that, that wasn't what we were doing. Um, it was a very different interaction, really. And then, um, uh, yeah, the, so, I actually didn't, I deliberately didn't watch, I knew about Boy State and I knew many of the people who had shot it, they're friends of mine, but I didn't actually watch the movie before I shot Girl State on purpose hmm. because I didn't want to be uh, knocked out of my own operating comfort. I, I, de I decided that Jesse and Amanda, the directors, had hired me for my Verite experience and because they trusted my creative instincts. So I wanted those to work and to get, because if I, if I was thinking, oh, well, this is what they did on Boise and it looked like that, so I should be doing X, Y, or Z, I would lose my own, whatever it is that, that I do <laughs> when, when I'm shooting. And, and you get into kind of a Zen mode where you're not thinking about it, you're just doing it. And you're, those, the best parts are when you're sort of one with the person you're filming and you're attuned to what's happening in front of you, whether it's one or 10 people, you're just attuned to the action and you're anticipating, you're alert, and you're just putting the camera in the right place, in the right place, in the right place. And that just comes from being in present in the moment. And the more you're thinking about how you should be doing it, the less present you can be in what you're actually doing. So my concern was that if I watched Boy State first, I would be trying to to confine myself to something that wasn't natural to me necessarily. Um, and, and then I would just end up fighting my own instincts and that, that wouldn't get me anywhere good. Um, we did talk a lot about how, how specifically in with the equipment we were going to do it because we only had, you know, a 10 day period really with these girls. Um, and that was the idea between one DP, one girl, so they would get used to us very quickly and get comfortable having us in, having us in close, um, because we did shoot on primes, and with primes, you you have a lot less flexibility because you physically have to move to change the frame, so it means changing the frame less often sometimes because movement can be distracting. It means maybe you're closer than you would want to be under some circumstances to get the frame you want, to get the intimacy you want. 
Um, it means you let shots play out longer and let a scene develop within the frame and, and do shifts in focus rather than in frame size, um, all these things. And we talked a lot about that and what, what lenses everybody wanted to use. Um, you know, some people had uh, Canon C70s on a gimbal. I had the C500 Mark II on my shoulder. That's how I like to do it. Um, and I, I, I used the 50 mil the whole time which I found was sort of the sweet spot in terms of getting intimate shots and wider shots of many people without having to do too much movement, without having to be too distracting and without having to get also too close because I, I don't like to get in people's space too much because then they're aware of me and not of what they're experiencing. It's kind of a long answer to your question. <laughs> no, um, it's a great answer. It's a great answer. Um, I do want to just clarify a term because we have some people mm -hmm. that listen to our podcast that don't know anything about filmmaking. So you talked about prime lenses. Can you yes. explain uh, of prime lenses? Absolutely. So uh, there's basically two kinds of lenses that are generally used for most filmmaking. Um, there's primes, which are single uh, sets of single size lenses is the easiest way to say it, I guess. And they come in a range of sizes. Um, you know, the general range that you would use on most films is somewhere around 20, 21, up to maybe 100, 150. Um, they, they go much longer and they go much wider for extreme purposes. But they're sort of that general range of the different size frames you're gonna see of people. And as you get closer and closer, optically in the glass, different things happen. So you use different lenses to create different looks and different effects. And I can get really into the weeds about what happens with focus and, you know, depth of focus, depth of field it's called, um, with uh, aberrations in the lens. I mean, there's all kinds of things that cinematographers geek out about and love <laughs> about lenses. lenses. The lens is the best part of it. Like you can use, I don't even care that much about which camera you use. I care about what the glass is because that's really what makes a great image is great glass. That is so interesting because I have watched like DPs geek out about these things. I'm like, why do they care so much? You know, oh, yeah. I mean, I am yeah. a director that is new and so I don't know equipment. And so it is funny that you guys talk this language about these lenses <laughs> that makes no sense to me. Well, I mean, I think I had to learn it. I didn't know when I first started any of this stuff and I didn't even know how to see it. And you learn how to see it and you learn what what different lens sizes do optically and on people's faces and on landscapes and on whatever it is, um, you learn by using them and comparing them. Um, so, th so those are all the primes. A zoom lens covers a whole range and there are, there are sizes of zoom lenses. There's wide zooms that are you know, the wide end, telephoto zooms that are the long end, it's called, um, that get in very tight on people's faces from a long distance away or you know, whatever you wanna do. And they, they are optically much more complicated because they have lots of layers of glass to create all these different frame sizes that you adjust by turning them. And uh, generally speaking, they don't have as narrow a depth of, of field. So the focus, the, the area of the, of the frame that is in focus at any given time, which is what is called depth of field, changes with the, the size of the, of the lens. And a zoom, because it has so much more glass in it, will always have a wider depth of field, generally speaking, unless there's many factors that go into this, which now I'm getting in the weeds again. But anyway, <laughs> people, people often prefer to use primes because generally speaking, they have a narrower range of focus, depth of field, than zooms. And the reason people like that narrow range is that it's what they, most people would say is more cinematic, which is one of those words people throw around and it's like, what does it mean? Um, it means you've got areas of the frame that are out of focus, which, which then directs your attention solely on the things that are in focus. And then the fewer things are in focus, the more your attention is controlled onto that, on that point. And from a filmmaker standpoint, that's really important because you're telling the audience what you want them to look at in any given moment. Um, you're mm. controlling where they're looking in the frame as the frame changes, as the shot changes. So the narrower your depth of field, the more control over you have over the audience's attention. Um, and what I was saying earlier about uh, shooting verite documentary with primes, often you're not changing anything except focus because it's so narrow on a 50 mil prime. 
I would just be holding a shot and shifting focus from person to person, depending on who's talking. And it's a big enough shift that watching it later, that's where your eye is going. You're going to person A who's talking. And then you're looking over here because this is now out of focus and nobody likes to look at things that are out of focus. So they go to the thing that's in focus. So it's, it's a really interesting way of telling the story without changing anything else. Hmm. Um, you know, the famous example of this is, you know, Citizen Kane, which was the first first film in the Hollywood era, the old Hollywood era that had very wide depth of field. Everything was in focus and people hadn't seen that before. And that was astonishing because technically hmm. you couldn't do that before that. And and he and Orson Welles used that to great effect to create these incredible perspectives, which at the time was a big deal. Now we see it all the time. No one cares. <laughs> They they prefer the narrow thing. They prefer to have areas that you can't see what's happening, and that's considered more beautiful. Um, mm. But they're I mean they're all tools, and you can use them however you want. I, I am always of the opinion that it's not there's no hard and fast rule to what is the best, the most beautiful, the right way to do something. It's what works best for the story you're trying to tell in that moment, um, mm. and gets you where you want the audience to go. Beautiful answer. Chad, anything else to add to that? Any other questions about that particular subject before we move on? No, I mean, but I'm happy to kind of circle back to you saying that at some point you had to learn these things, right? That it wasn't something that was um, just, it's not necessarily things that are super intuitive. They're things that you, that you learn from nuances from other people. So I'd love to kind of use that as a, a starting off point to talk a little bit about your background and how you, how you got here, how you learned those things. We know that you have a degree from Harvard. Um, and so that's people, uh, I think Terrence Malick maybe as well, but I don't know a lot of filmmakers that, uh, um, have Harvard origins, uh, potentially. So I'm, I'm curious, well, what is your, or what social is your anthropology you origins? So yeah, social anthropology, <laughs> absolutely. Which I imagine go well with documentary. It, yeah, it, it does. Helps. Yeah, that was unanticipated. Um, and it has actually been very helpful. Uh, so I didn't get into filmmaking until after I got out of school. Um, I did do some still photography my, my last year in college and that I, I enjoyed, but somehow it wasn't quite enough. And, when I was sort of casting about for what I wanted to do with myself and I thought about the still photography and I had done a lot of writing as a, as a kid growing up and in school. And I just liked to write. And I sort of, I put those two things together and I came up with film editing and um, I didn't really know anything about filmmaking at that point, but I sort of, I sort of had a concept of what you did when you edited a movie together in the sense of telling the story. Um, so I went to this place, I'm from Maine originally, and there's a place in Maine that at the time was called the International Film and Television Workshops. It's now called, I think, Maine Media College. And it was a set of um, workshops that were a week, two weeks, sometimes three weeks, uh, taught by working professionals in film who would come in the summer because, you know, who doesn't want to go to Maine in the summer <laughs> and uh, sit around with a bunch of other film people and talk about film. So uh, it was taught divine. by... It, it was fantastic. Um, you know, we had actual working directors, working Ken Burns. ADs, working cinematographers, working production designers who came and taught these classes from, you know, a hands-on, ground-up experience level. So I went there and took a couple of intro courses to figure out, I thought, my path to becoming an editor and discovered I didn't want to be an editor. I didn't want to sit in a dark room in front of a, a screen all day. I wanted to be on set with the camera making the images. Um, so I, uh, I ended up moving to New York and I didn't know anybody. I, no one in my family ever did this um, kind of work. So I called, I got at the time, I actually don't remember how I did this, but I was able to get the list of the union camera assistants in New York which I guess was a publicly available thing at the time. <laughs> and I just started cold calling people and saying, here I am. This is what experience I have. I know I'll work for you for a day on whatever you want as a loader, just a film loader. Let me show you I can, I can do this. And eventually, and this is where I will say, <laughs> the, uh, the Harvard diploma paid off. The first person to give me a job was someone who looked at my resume and had also gone to Harvard and said, mm. why didn't you tell me that's where you went to school? I've got a shoot coming up <laughs> next weekend. 
come load for me. <laughs> so uh, you never know when, when some of these networking things actually do work. And that, that got me started. Um, I didn't study any film in college, but it got me that first foot in the door. So I guess that's, I guess it was all worth it. Um, and then after we're going to pause, started, what, what's that? Hang on for there? one second. We need to take a break because I can't hear anybody. So stand by for a second. Oh, I froze there for a second and then it came, came back for me, but yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure what happened. Okay. Okay. So I'm so sorry. Some, some, for some reason, my AirPods just stopped cooperating. Mm. Um, and I didn't hear, I heard you say, um, we got to the part where your Harvard degree came in handy. Yes. And then That's as far as I got. Yeah. Okay. So was there a good place to cut there, Chad? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can get to the Harvard degree. And then just that for me at the end, you both of you guys all got pixelated and I wasn't sure if I was still live or if I was going to catch up. So I was like, I can say that second. last part again, if that's helpful. Yeah. Why yeah, don't let's, you let's do that? Let's do that. All right. Okay. Just go up right um, ahead. We're going to keep on rolling. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I, so the one place that my college degree actually did come in handy in the film world was that first entree to the New York camera assisting job because the, after making a lot of cold calls and sending out resumes, the first person who said, yes, I will hire you was someone who had gone to my same school and, and said, why didn't you tell me where you went to school? Of course, come load for me. Um, so it paid off in that sense. Yeah. And, uh, and then you just went from there. And then I just went from there and, and worked my way up the hierarchy. I, mean, I was a film loader and then a second AC and then a focus puller for a number of years. And at a certain point realized I, um, and, and all along, all the, as I was doing that, I was trying to shoot whatever I could. I shot, you know, low budget shorts. I shot art installation projects, whatever I could find. I shot a narrative film while I was still working as a second. Um, and, Around the early 2000s, a, a friend who was had been an AD had a documentary project that he had wanted to co-direct and said to me, would you like to shoot it? And I, I hadn't really shot a lot of documentary before, but I'd worked on them as an assistant. And I said, yes, of course. What are we doing? And, um, and, that, and after that, and that, that film went to Sundance in 2004. Mm -hmm which none of us anticipated. Uh, but that sort of was the jump start of my documentary DP career. Wow. That's a beautiful story, huh? <laughs> it's everybody's kind of dream. So, you know, from there, you know, you kind of jumped the shark at some point where, <laughs> you know, you went from, you went from doing all of these ND things or smaller things. And yes, your, your film went to Sundance in 2004. Um, you guys, I'm going to have to stop one more time. And I am so sorry because there is someone at my door that I, I was expecting three hours ago. So okay. just keep Where talking amongst yourselves. I'll be right. Back. Okay. All right. All right. Take well, maybe some of this is usable. Cause I, I'm curious, um, for myself, like I've been in the union for, um, or I was in the union for about 10 years, you know, as a, as a crew guy started as a grip, went over to, be an electrician. Um, all it took was my first day X. And I was like, I want that. Uh, that guy sitting in the back of the gate there. <laughs> um, no, but so being a crew guy and kind of working my way up there, I meet a lot of other filmmakers that um, have that passion. They go into crewing to learn and then they feel uh, maybe stuck. They'd have the knowledge, but they don't necessarily all have um, they lose, they lose maybe some of their access to the, where those stories originate and where the indie things come from. Um, especially when you get kind of insulated there, how do you kind of uh, go about finding, uh, those jobs while you're second AC? And that's also tiring to be on set 14 hours. And then you're like, all right, let's go shoot a short this weekend and then come back. Yeah. It, I mean, that's, that's an excellent question. And 
I mean, the way the way that I did it, I don't know if it's possible to do now because it was a different time and life was less expensive in general. So when I did it, I, I mean, I would shoot these no budget projects on the side while I was living, you know, making my living as an assistant um, for little to no money or sometimes no money. Um, and then go back to making good money as an AC. Um, and the moment, you know, it came, came that moment when I shot that first documentary and realized that this was the time to just start shooting. And I had, I had a, a year or two years, I don't remember exactly how long now, but there was a period where I was hand to mouth all the time because I was taking very low budget jobs and turning down lucrative AC jobs because I had made the decision that I was going to be a DP now. And I think the thing is you, you kind of have to do that. And I did it every step of the way. So when I was a second, at a certain point, I said, I'm not going to be a second anymore. I'm going to be a focus puller now. And I'm going to turn down all those great second jobs and try to get focus and just tell everybody I'm playing focus and get everybody to come on board and hire me as a first instead. And that took some time and some, you know, rice and beans <laughs> to eat. Um, but uh, I was able to do it. And I, that, that was, I mean, to go to, to uh, sort of separate point, which is, I think for people for whom the hierarchy doesn't work very well, which is to say, in my experience, it, it's, it's an old boys network, it's an old boys business. And generally speaking, going up the chain has worked for the men in the business. And when you do well as a first AC, they say to you, why don't you operate on the next one? Or when you operate well, then you get a chance to shoot, you know, second unit on, on the next project. For women and, and other people outside the, the mainstream perspective of who can do this, whether you're brown or black or, you know, whatever, whatever marginalization you have, somehow that hierarchy doesn't kick in in the right way. You, people say, I had people say as much to me, you know, you're a really good second. You should stay seconding because we need more women seconds. Instead of saying, you're a great second, well, maybe you should try firsting. That was not the conversation that happened. So I had to make that choice that I was gonna step up because no one was gonna make it for me. Um, and no one was going to present that as a possibility just because it was there. I had to say, I want this, I'm gonna do it. Um, and I think that's I think that's true in many industries in many situations, um, but it's also it's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do. And I had to be willing to live a very low overhead life for a long time to make those transitions um, happen and sort of weather through those periods when I wasn't you know making the good living I'd made in the lower category. You know, when, when you're trying to step up into something new, even if you have all the experience and all the skills, convincing other people of that is another proposition. Um, so I, I don't know if I answered your question, but. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it, and that's, that's, it's always interesting to me how people kind of take that jump because it is a lot of kind of stepping a few steps forwards and then taking a step back and then. Um, I, I felt, and I don't know if you felt the same way, that each kind of step, um, forward has taken a little bit longer. It's been a little bit more difficult and you're in it for a little longer than you anticipated. And then when you take that next step, the, it takes longer for the phone to ring for that thing than I had, you know, going from, um, you know, maybe, I, I want to say a grip an electrician or kind of, you know, the, it's the same thing, but, you know, going from maybe a, a grip to a best boy is a little, it's a little easier than going from, you know, the best boy to the gaffer or whatever, um, kind of taking those next steps. And I found that same way to be true with shooting is it's taken longer to be like, you know, to have the phone ring consistently um, in a different in a different kind of category, which makes sense. Well, you have to build a new client base, right? You have to you have to get a bunch because when you're the crew is big, and when you're one of many assistants or many electricians or many grips, there are many of you to refer each other, to hire each other, to recommend each other, um, to bring each other on. But there's only one DP, and 
there's only one director and one producer. Well, there's many producers, but there's one director really who's going to hire that DP. Um, so you can't rely on a cat, you know, a big group of people to be helping you pay the rent every month by bringing you on lots of projects. You've got to develop this stable of, of, uh, of directors and producers who look to you to do this, you know, singular job. And, and that's a harder thing to do. And it, and I think people in filmmaking, well, many things are risk averse because it's a lot of money on the line all the time. And you always have to have that in the back of your mind. Like how do I make these people feel comfortable about spending the money and, putting me in charge of spending some of that money on whatever aspect of the film it is. Um, so it's, it's um, there, there, I, I mean, there's a certain aspect of being a DP that is uh, a salesman's job of selling yourself to the producers and to the directors. And it, it, I, it's not a part of the job I'm particularly comfortable with, or I think I'm very good at. I've seen people who are really good at it. Um, and sometimes those same people are also really good at everything else. Uh, and, and you get the perfect package, right? Um, and some people are unbelievable cinematographers and terrible at selling themselves. So it's, 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 it's a, it's a tough thing. Um, it's a, it's a complicated business and requires multiple levels of yourself that you have to put forward. And, and I will say I learned a lot more about that by going back and forth between documentary and narrative because it's kind of different worlds and different people that do these jobs. Um, but they, they all need to feel comfortable with you and trust that you're going to support them and, and help them make the movie they want to make. Um, yeah. Did you ever get discouraged during that journey and just want to cash it in and be like, this is crazy. And if so, can you tell us a moment about when you decided that, no, I'm going to keep going. Talk to us about discouragement and why you kept going. Yeah, sure. I mean, there have been many sort of bleak periods when the phone wasn't ringing and I started thinking, well, what else can I do? What other, what other job would I rather be doing? And, um, the problem was I couldn't come up with that other job. <laughs> this is what I want to do. I mean, for all its for all the faults and all the difficulties and all the hardships of, of the of making movies, it's just so much fun and it's so satisfying. And I just love I just love the camera work. So um, I always came back to it and and tried to find a way to at least survive until the phone did ring again. I mean, I would make very short term goals like. You just have to get through the next month and it's going to ring and I'm going to do whatever I can to make it ring, but I'm not going to think about my five-year plan. I'm going to think about my four-week plan. Um, and, and usually that worked. Usually I could get through. I mean, I will say this last year of the strikes has been one of the longest fallow periods I've ever been through. We've all been through. Uh, it, it's this is the scariest it's ever gotten, really. I mean, we've, we've had strikes before too, but it never as bad as this past year, I think, for just general industry, you know, cessation on all fronts, narrative, documentary, you name it. Um, True for you too, Chad, right? I mean, and I, you've expressed yeah. some of the same thing. Yeah, it was rough. I, you know, kind of, you know, previous years, it was just like, I don't know, like, this year was particularly interesting because I had, I think I was like four movies that I'm, I was all, I was very proud of all come out this year in the year that we're not working, you know? So it's like the, seeing the fruit of the labor, but then not really being able to go back for it. It's it, maybe it was good timing to be like, keep going, keep doing the thing. Um, but very interesting experience this year. Um, and I think coming off of COVID as well, um, where, you know, I was at the time I was on Fargo and we shut down and we come back and we shut down again and we come back. Right. So it's kind of been this weird um, fluctuation the last four or five years that I hadn't seen previously, for sure. It's been uh, it's been a challenge for a lot of filmmakers, definitely. But I think that's why it's um, more important now to be able to, to tell those stories and to continue to put the information out there and make sure that this information is being passed down um, from different generations of, of filmmakers and different uh, experience levels and backgrounds um, because you're seeing a lot of people leave, but you're also seeing a lot of new people have access. 
And like you said that, uh, the, the Canon, um, sorry, the, the R, the DSLR kind of camera that you had on the gimbal, the C70, um, the C70, sorry. Yeah. So the C70, um, you know, you're, you're having all kinds of new access with equipment, with, with, um, distribution. There's all kinds of new, um, new things. And so we're all adapting to that. And it's a very interesting time, I think for, for filmmaking. You know, Chad and I were talking earlier before you came on. And one of the things, you know, we were talking about questions we both wanted to ask and Chad had a great one. He wanted to know what your advice would be for um, filmmakers who, um, you know, want to shoot and do what you're doing, but don't have the access, don't have the money. Um, you know, what would you, what advice would you give to them for how to, to make something look really great or right, Chad, that's, that was the question. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of people that, like I said, have a lot of the, the access level is different now. You can get cameras, you you have an iPhone. Um, so I think, you know, what, what would your advice be to someone that, um, wants to tell stories and, um, is, is looking to do it, but maybe feels intimidated at they haven't done it before, or they don't know where to start or what the best advice might be for someone in that kind of situation where they have a good story. Um, but maybe they don't have the experience or they don't have the access to, um, whatever budgets they're doing it themselves. Yeah. Uh, I guess the first thing I would say is to watch a lot of movies and shows and watch especially ones that you've already seen so that you're not experiencing the story for the first time. You're looking at how it was made. So I would say pick a favorite movie that you have, I mean, whatever it is. It could be The Matrix. It could be, I don't know, it could be Fargo. It could be whatever show you like to watch. And instead of instead of looking at it from an audience perspective, think about what choices were made to give you the images that you're looking at. And even if you can watch it on some format where you can stop it as you go along and just look at images and say, why, why did they pick this angle with the camera? Where are the actors in the frame? Or if it's a, if it's a documentary, where are the people in the frame and why is the camera where it is? Um, why did they light it this way? What maybe do you think they used to light it if you had to guess? I mean, just from where, just look at where the light is falling in the room. Where are the lights? Um, you know, what, what kinds of angles make you feel certain things or don't? Um, and then try to put that stuff into practice. Just make your own silly movies. If it's a documentary, just ask someone, you know, a friend, if you can just follow them around with your phone for a day and try to capture what they're doing. I mean, I, I, I didn't do that, but now I, when I started, you couldn't do that. There weren't phones that you could have in your, you didn't have computers in your hands. And we, none of that existed. I, I was back in, I'm, you know, I'm old. It was in the film days. <laughs> um, but uh, now, now you do have all these things you can play with and just try to, to make, make little stories. Um, I would say the more you can reach out to filmmakers that you do know or someone you know, I know somebody, I mean, Yes, as I said before, every step I took, I made the decision to do it, but I also told everybody I knew that that's what I was planning to do. So that when someone, you know, maybe someone who was a DP but didn't want a particular job because it wouldn't pay them enough, they might think, oh, I know Layla wants to shoot. Maybe she'll take this one. Let's give it to her. You know, when I was first starting out. So you have to tell people that you want to do this and ask them. Their advice, people, people generally like to give advice, <laughs> makes them, makes them feel good about what they know. So ask them for their advice, ask them for a few tips on what you're doing. Show, ask if you can show them something. If it's someone that you, you know, whose opinion you respect. Um, you know, these are all things that don't really cost anything to do. Uh, if you have a phone that has a camera, you can do all of it. Um, and then if, if you really want to do this, I would say start, it's, it's, a, it's a craft that you learn and you learn it by doing it. So work for people who know more than you do. Work as an assistant, work as a, as a grip, work as an electric. Um, work with people who are really skilled and will train you because that's what it takes. It's, it's, a, it's a lifelong process of learning this craft. I don't know all of it. There's lots more to learn. Um, and I've been doing it for 30 years. So it's it's something that you apprentice and get better at 
there are some people who go right out of the gate, make a movie, goes to Sundance, wins an Oscar, and they're off and running. That's generally not what happens for most of right. us. It's like lightning strikes. It does. It actually happens. It does. But, it does happen. Uh, but not usually. It's not, that's not a life plan. <laughs> right. That's, that's, you know, that's luck. That's an accident. That's a convergence of many factors. And it can happen, but I wouldn't go to the bank with it because, you know, they're not going to give you a loan on that, that idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's an example of it kind of happening right now. This when I, when I was just at Sundance, I went to a panel of these sort of young emerging filmmakers, one of whom was named Sean Wong, who was just nominated for an Oscar for his short film that was at South by Southwest, I think, last year. It's, it's, short, it's nominated for you know, a short film Oscar, a documentary. And one at, at Sundance, his film won the dramatic, I think, Grand Jury Award and some other award um, for, his, for his dramatic feature. And he just sold it to Focus Features. So, and he's, he, he looked to me like he was about 14, but he's probably in his <laughs> 20s. Um, anyway, it does happen. And the problem is when it happens, everyone thinks, oh, I will do that too. You got to learn it. <laughs> most of us, yeah. most of us have to learn it and we have to work for other people who know more than we do. That, I mean, that's fundamentally what I would say. If you really want to do this, find someone who's more than you do and work for them. That's great advice. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Now we're about to wrap up. We have two things before I want to close us out. The first one is I always love to ask people on the podcast. Um, if there's something that you want to say uh, that we haven't asked you, um, what would it be? And that comes from when I was a director, there were always, or I did the girl who wore freedom. There were always questions I wanted the audience to ask me so I could tell a certain story, you know, that was really particular to the film. So I'm really asking you whether it's with girl state or whether it's with your own career, is there anything that you are passionate about that you want to share with us? Um, I guess what, I mean, the one thing I would say right off the bat is just that this is a collaboration, this kind of work. Uh, you don't make a movie with one person. You make a movie with lots of people. And you also don't always know where the best idea is going to come from. And it might not be you. Um, a lot of times, you know, it might be the gaffer. It might be the PA. It might be someone who just walked by and had a suggestion. But these are all collaborative people who have ideas and they're all talented and they're all skilled. And the more you open up your mind to that input and take it in, and if you don't like it, don't use it. But if it's great, use it and also show your appreciation for that. Say, you know what, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And, and make sure everyone else knows that it was their idea. Because I think you have to share that kind of appreciation so that people feel people feel appreciated and feel um, included in the creative process. Because everyone's making films because they like to make films. It's too hard. This is a hard job. Which I think people who don't do it don't understand. Filmmaking is grueling. It's grueling work. And the people who do it are a little crazy. Um, so we're true. all crazy and passionate about Especially this work. Especially Chad. <laughs> we work we work like maniacs um but yeah. we do it because we we have something we want to say and we want to help say it and so if if you want to make films be open to that kind of collaborative interaction because that's really what makes a great movie that's my phone well said. Well said. I, I lied about having two things. So there's another one I want to throw in here because I want to do exactly what you just said, which is I want to say Chad gave a great idea when he first came on and he he's the one that threw me the ball that said, ask her to tell the story about the tunnels under New York uh, and the doc <laughs> she did for Discovery. So uh, Chad, hats off to you because I can't wait to hear this story. Okay. Um, so in 2008, I worked on a docu-series that ended up being on, on the History Channel. And it was about the Sandhogs, who are the miners, the urban miners that dig the water tunnels and the subway tunnels under New York City. And um, at the time we were filming, they had a number of, they always have a number of projects going on, but they were really busy at that particular moment because they had just gotten the funding to extend the Long Island Railroad uh, under New York, 
the from from Long Island under Manhattan, under Grand Central, and create this whole new cavern under Grand Central that was like a second half of the station, which would run the Long Island Railroad through it, so that you could go from you know Metro North all the way out to Long Island without having to go above ground. That would be um, amazing. Well, it's there now. <laughs> all wow. those many years, it's it's there. But when we were filming, they were just starting this. And, or they were they were finishing work that had begun 30 years earlier and was abandoned, but they had gotten the funding finally to do it. So, um, and they were also extending the seven train all the way to jet to the Javits Center. And finally, and really most importantly, they were building the third water tunnel because all of the all of the water in New York comes through these two tunnels from the Croton Reservoir, and they are a hundred years old and they are both in operation all the time, which means you can't repair anything because you can't turn either of them off in order to repair them. So they had a hundred years worth of repairs that needed to be done, basically. And in order to repair them, they had to build a third tunnel that they could bring online and then go in and see what was wrong with these tunnels. And I'm sure there were things. So we were filming right at the, the finishing of the third water tunnel, which was this huge deal. Um, so that meant I was underground for about five months every day. Uh, oh in the goodness. in these, I mean, they're primitive tunnels. They're what ultimately. I mean, everyone, everyone. If you've been in New York, probably you've been in a subway. Um, and this was the tunnel before the trains are in there, and it's just it's just rock. It's just a hole. You know, it's a hole through the ground. Um, and uh, we were filming the. They they have three shifts, so they film round the clock. Um, and we were usually filming the day shift. So we'd be there from six in the morning until around four in the afternoon. Uh, and we'd go down and you know, take a little train from the entrance of the shaft to the work site, these little primitive sort of square trains, and um, and film these guys tunneling. Just That's what they did all day. They tunneled. And there, there are a number of ways they do it. It's all, it's all mining. It's, they have these tunnel boring machines that are these huge contraptions that you walk inside of that have, you know, cutters at the, the face that bore the hole through the, through the, the New York schist, which is this very tough, hard rock that's very hard to cut, but it's also very uh, strong. And it's why you can have all these subways next to each other without the thing collapsing. Um, and they would drill and they would dynamite and all the exciting things that miners do <laughs> that are very dangerous. And we had to show that we were safe people to have down there because it's the kind of work that gets and does get people killed. Miners mm. do die um, because of horrible accidents that happen. Um, so you have to demonstrate that you are sensitive to that situation, um, that you're not going to make sudden stupid moves that you're going to pay attention to your safety around you and to the safety of other people around you. And, um, and if you, if you, if you can demonstrate your trustworthiness to them, then they're happy to have you there. Um, but we had to do that. And there were a number of ways that we had to do that. Um, no one had ever filmed with the Sandhogs before the director who the executive producer of this series. And he, he spent, I think it was six months working as a Sandhawk to convince them that he was serious about wanting to make a movie about them, a documentary. And he got their trust by doing the actual work of mining for six months, showing up every day, wow. going down in there dig and digging with them. And finally they said, okay, you're all right. You mean <laughs> it. You, you can bring a couple of guys down here. <laughs> um, he ended up bringing two whole film crews Um for months, but uh, yeah, that, that's what it took. That's what it took. Um, wow. It was it was a great job. It was dirty. It was wet. It was you know that was loud. There's machinery everywhere, dust. Um, but the guys were all eccentric and interesting and fun and smart and engaging. And everyone was a character. Everyone was worth turning the camera on. Um, the actual process of mining was fascinating. Uh, visually really interesting. It's all, it's actually all quite fairly well lit because they have to let to see to work. So there are lights everywhere and they also have air piped in. So you can, you know, release fine. <laughs> but um, it's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's an environment, environment unlike any other really. And uh, I, 
I loved it. And I loved um, witnessing witnessing these these moments of people working hard at something that has really tangible results that you can see happen and solving problems constantly that are that they're constantly encountering whether it's a broken piece of equipment or a derailment of the train or you know whatever it is there's just something there's always something and uh it's it was just it was great it was really fun fascinating All right. Well, thank you for sharing that story with us. We are now going to move into our special segment, DocuView Deja Vu. (laughs) I don't know if they prepared you for this, but we usually ask our filmmakers to bring a documentary to share with our audience. Did you happen to do that? I did. I have have several, but I have a favorite. Well, you can give us two if you want. Okay. Well, the first one, um, it's called Morena's which is spelled M-O-R-E-N-A, parenthesis S, close parenthesis. It's the name Morena, but it's two of them. Um, and it's it's a entirely verite documentary. It was shot in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, by these two Dominican Republic filmmakers, two Dominican filmmakers. Um, and it's about a, a Dominican immigrant in Argentina who has uh, a small shop that she, uh, who like a restaurant that she's struggling to maintain and has a couple of goals in life. One of which is to bring her teenage son to live with her from where he is, which is, um, I think he's back in the DR and she wants to bring him to Argentina. So it's very much a, a slice of life documentary. And it's these, these two first time filmmakers, one of whom I know because he was a second AC on a job I was doing. And, after the job ended, I heard from him several months later to say, my movie is premiering, um, if you're interested in seeing it, in New York. So I went. And I will say, it is a piece of art. It is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Wow. Um, the way they filmed it, the choices they made, the way they did the sound, it, it's they are artists. And um, it's just a beautiful piece of, of filmmaking, and it's a beautiful story. Um it's on the festival circuit right now. I don't know where it's going to land, but I would say keep an eye out for it because it is worth seeing. So Moreno and the directors beautiful. are Ivan Delara and Vic- Vicky Apollinario. They're the co-directors. So that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you have another one. Um, yes, yeah, completely different. To, yeah? Which is uh, uh, Senna. Which is it isn't that recent, but it's it's also worth seeing, and it's entirely archival. Um, oh, it has wow. voiceover narrate, no, voiceover from interviews, but you never see the interviewees. It's entirely archival footage, but geniusly cut together to make you feel like you're seeing things play out in front of you in real time, as if it were shot verite. But it was, you know, it's a lot of it's news footage, it's race, it's race footage. It's all about the, the race car driver, Ayrton Senna, um, Formula One. And is it S E N A or C E N A? It's S E N N A. N N A. Okay. And do you know where we can find it? Maybe. It's, uh, I think it's on Netflix. Is it on Netflix? It might be. Yeah. I, okay. It might be. I, I could be wrong on that, but it's I'm a great sure film. It's somewhere. Film. It might be on Prime Video or it might be on Netflix. I'm pretty sure it's it's available to see. Um, All right. Awesome. Is it, yeah. So those are my two picks. Chad, do you have one? <laughs> um, you get a pass if you don't, because I asked you. I, I know. Last I, I I did just watch. Um, you know, the the a friend of mine just had a film. Uh, uh, go to, like New York Times has a sh- series of short docs, um, and uh, the one that I I have to recommend over there that I, I just watched, and I, I haven't gotten to watch his yet quite yet, but um, he's the city, the chronicles of a New York blacksmith, and it's just this really beautiful um, like quiet verite of this tiny little Brooklyn blacksmith shop that or a locksmith shop that's been open for a hundred years, you know, and in continuous operations kind of handed down. And the place is just, you know, totally magical. One of those places you walk into and it's just like, you know, it's such a character and everything, all these people are just super interesting. And um, it's a really great story that kind of uh, about shifting about generations about things being handed off and um something being new a a new dream kind of being uh um established and um 
So it's, it's a very beautiful, touching movie, and it's, it's told over the course of time. There's a lot of negative space in there. There's a lot of letting things unfold. They're just like little pickups of items around the room that kind of tell the story. Um, so that would be my suggestion. Um, it's, I'm sure it's the New York Times website or Vimeo or something. All right. Thank you for that. Um, and I want to report on a movie that I saw this week called Sour Grapes. Uh, it is on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but uh, it is a fascinating story. It's basically a crime documentary, but it's you know definitely high crimes and misdemeanors. But uh, it's I learned a lot about winemaking and wine stealing, and I definitely <laughs> recommend that. And I watched it sort of in conjunction with Bottle Shock, which is a narrative film um, on wine making which i thought was a beautiful film super interesting very creative um you know it has chris pine so i mean you know how could it be bad <laughs> uh but anyway it was uh it was a great film so i recommend sour grapes all right that's it everybody we just really appreciate you being here thank you for listening to documentary first where we believe everybody has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it bye everybody Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlwhowarefreedom.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtenacker.